Lord, we do need you. We need you now more than ever. Father, as we open your word this morning and we look at it, we would have no understanding of it if it weren't for you. No ability to comprehend the deep spiritual truths that it holds. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit of promise that you've given to us, Lord, that helps us to interpret and to understand what we're reading and what we're hearing. And as he draws us to the Savior in a deeper, more intimate relationship, Father, I pray that we would yield to him, we would open up our minds and our hearts, that the truths that we're about to look at, Lord God, that they would convict us in areas that we need to be convicted in and comfort us in other areas, Lord God, and console us. Have your way in us, Lord God, and whatever you want to do, we open ourselves to it for the glory of your name. And for Jesus' sake, I pray. Robert Cooperschmidt, 81 years of age, didn't have any flying experience whatsoever. But in an emergency, he quickly learned how to land an airplane. Robert and his 52-year-old pilot friend Wesley Sickle were flying from Indianapolis to Muncie, Indiana in June 1998. And during the flight, the pilot slumped over the controls. It turned out that he was dead. The Cessna 172 single-engine plane began to nosedive and Cooper Schmidt grabbed the controls. He got on the radio and he pleaded for help. Nearby were two pilots who heard the call. Mount Comfort was the closest airport and the two pilots gave him a steady stream of instructions on climbing, steering, and the scariest part, landing. The two experienced pilots circled the runway three times before this somewhat frantic and totally inexperienced pilot even was ready to attempt to land the plane. Emergency vehicles were called out for what seemed like an approaching disaster, and witnesses said that the plane's nose nudged the center line and bounced a few times before the tail hit the ground, and the Cessna ended up in a patch of soggy grass next to the runway. Amazingly enough, the man was not injured. This pilot listened and he followed every instruction as if his life depended on it. Because it did. What would you have done? Same thing probably, right? Imagine what would take place in the lives of us believers if we listened to and obeyed the word of God with the same earnestness. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? A couple of weeks ago, we began examining the importance of that scriptural command. And I suggested to you that taking stock spiritually is essential if we are to present to the world an undistorted Jesus. I made the statement that evaluation and change are the constructive means by which we grow into mature followers of Christ. 
And by obeying the Bible's command to periodically engage in the discipline of spiritual self-examination, we guard against the danger of spiritual shipwreck. Because you and I both know that spiritual drifting has deadly consequences. Is that right? Right now, in this moment, where are you in your spiritual journey? Where are you? Think about that. All of us need to find the red dot in our spiritual lives. Know what I mean by the red dot? As Larry Crabb says, you go into a mall in a big city. And what's the first thing that you do in that mall, if you've ever been to one, that's bigger than the ones in the state of Maine? Okay? You go to the directory and you find that red dot that says, you are here, right? Did you do that? The red dot. Most of us probably have no idea where we are. And locating the red dot in our spiritual life is the first step of your journey closer to God. Find the red dot. By examining ourselves, we uncover the truth about our declaration of faith. What your life and my life is like right now and what it is progressing toward or away from in your relationship to Christ has a great deal to do with the genuineness of our claim to be Christ-following disciples. And evaluating whether or not we are truly in the faith is not just a nice suggestion that Paul gives us in 2 Corinthians 13. As we discovered a couple of weeks ago, it's a serious command. A serious command. Look at 2 Corinthians 13, 5 for a moment. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. It's serious. He repeats it twice. There's no option here. The scripture commands that we continually test ourselves and examine ourselves if we're, and we're to make it a habit of life. There are two reasons for this testing, if you remember from a couple of weeks ago. Number one, the first reason is that we test ourselves is to expose any glaring weakness or spiritual fractures in our lives. The second reason why Paul repeats it twice is indicated by the second command to examine ourselves for the purpose of approval. This is not just floors we're looking for. When we examine ourselves, we're also looking for something that puts a stamp of approval on our faith as well. Some kind of authentic affirmation, like a changed life. Because a changed heart always leads to a changed life. Test yourselves, Paul says. Examine yourselves. Find the red dot. It's a serious command with a specific concern. Again, the second part of that verse Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Now, something is seriously off if we claim that Christ lives inside of us, yet the fact makes no difference in our behavior or our worldview. Self-examination is not just a serious command with a specific concern, but examining yourself to see if you're in the faith also carries with it a sobering consideration. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 again, unless indeed you fail the test. 
None of us want to fail the test, do we? Now, last time I told you that when I give a talk on Sunday mornings, I'm addressing four, at least four groups of people. Those who are investigating the faith, who possess the faith in Christ, those who profess faith in Christ, they're intellectually convinced but spiritually uncommitted, and those who procrastinate about faith in Christ. Remember those four groups? If you recall, I referred to the people in those last two groups as what? Remember? Mugwumps. People who sit on the fence of faith with their mugs on one side and their wumps on the other, right? Unwilling to commit. Well, these people are in the greatest danger because they've heard the truth and they've not acted upon it. Now, I briefly introduced you at that time, a couple of weeks ago, to um, some sobering warnings in the book of Hebrews written to people who are in that precarious position. There are five, to be exact, that I pointed out, and I called them the five dangerous D's. You recall that? They warn people to fully commit themselves to Christ while they still can, while the opportunity is available. In the process of pinpointing that red dot for you of your spiritual position, you find yourself that you are here in one of these two groups of people. Those who profess faith in Christ but are not spiritually committed or those who procrastinate about faith in Christ, if you find yourself there, you, that you're perilously teetering on that fence, you need to take seriously and consider these five dangerous D's. And that's what I want to look at today. I want to look at those five dangerous D's in detail. Okay? And the first one is this. The danger of drifting. The danger of drifting. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. In verses 1 to 4. For this reason, the writer says, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. For this reason, it says there in verse 1. What does that refer to? It refers to everything the writer said in chapter 1 of Hebrews. Everything about the superiority of Jesus Christ and the salvation that is found in him. He warns people that they need to pay extremely close attention to what they've heard about Christ, lest they what? Drift away. Drift away. You know what those words drift away refer to? They refer to this slow, passive change of course. Like a thought slipping from your memory, which happens to me a lot these days. 
or a ring slipping off your finger inadvertently. It's the picture of a ship drifting ever so slightly off of its original course. A few years ago, my son Aaron was down visiting some relatives in uh, Rhode Island, uh, Narragansett, and uh, he got out on a windsurfer for the first time. And uh, he was just tooling around out in the bay, didn't realize that the wind was blowing. And so as he's trying to master and maneuver his maneuvers on this windsurfer, he turns around and looks at where his launching point was and finds out that he's like a half a mile away and slowly being pulled out to sea. So he gets on the board and he turns around and he starts paddling for all he's worth, only to realize that he's going backwards, not forward. It finally took someone to come out and help him get in. But see, the whole time that he was out there playing around, he didn't realize that he was drifting further and further and further away from his home. That's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about here. Someone once said that hell is probably overrun with people who were never actively opposed to Christ, but who simply neglected the gospel. How many people in your circle of acquaintances are simply neglecting the truth? Some of you might be in danger of that subtle, slow drift, little by little, falling off course. You're no longer spending the time that you once did cultivating your relationship with Christ deeper. The word becomes a little less compelling to you every day. Prayer becomes slightly less important. The fire that once burned in your heart seems now to be little more than a charred, smoldering wick. Some of you may be in danger of a subtle, slow drift, little by little, falling off course. Believe me, folks, it rarely happens all at once. Rarely. Drifting is not a radical departure. It's gradual slippage caused from continued neglect. That's what it is. All you have to do to shipwreck, folks, is simply neglect to check your course. That's all it takes. Look at verses 2 again. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? If we willfully choose to neglect the truth, we cannot escape the result. If you think you can willfully turn your back on Jesus Christ and escape judgment, you are sadly, sadly mistaken. The writer says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Listen, don't make the mistake that I have witnessed so many people make in my life. Don't underestimate the danger of devastation of spiritually drifting away. If you know that you are drifting right now, get on course. Get back on course. How do you know if you're spiritually drifting? I ran across something some time ago 
evidences of a backslidden condition. I would call them indicators of somebody who is spiritually drifting. I want to give them to you, just real quickly. You're not going to be able to write them down because I'm going to go fast. There's 25 of them that this guy has listed. So um, no detail here. I'm just going, you just listen to these and see if any of them strike a chord with you, okay? You're drifting when these things begin to be true about you. Prayer ceases to be a vital part of your life. The quest for biblical truth ceases and one grows content with the knowledge of eternal things that they've already acquired. The biblical knowledge possessed or being acquired is treating as external fact and not applied inwardly. Earnest thoughts about eternal things cease to be regular and gripping. The services of the church begin to lose their joy and delight for you. Pointed spiritual discussions are a source of embarrassment to you. Sports, recreation, and entertainment are a large and necessary part of your lifestyle. You couldn't live without them. Sins of the body and of the mind can be indulged in without an uproar in your spirit or your conscience. Aspirations for Christ-like holiness cease to be dominant in your life and thinking. The acquisition of money and goods becomes a major part of your thinking. You can mouth religious songs and words without any heart involved in it at all. You can hear the Lord's name taken in vain, spiritual concerns mocked, and eternal issues flippantly treated and not be moved at all toward indignation or action. You can watch degrading movies and television and read morally debilitating literature and it doesn't bother you in the least. Breaches of peace and the brotherhood are of no concern to you. The slightest excuse seems sufficient to keep you from spiritual duty and opportunity. You become content with your lack of spiritual power and no longer seek repeated endowments of power from God on high. You don't pray about it. You don't ask God to come into your life and do something powerful. You pardon your own sin and sloth by saying that the Lord understands. There is no music in your soul and no song in your heart. You can adjust happily to the lifestyle of the world like it's not even a problem. Injustice and human misery exist around you and you do little or nothing to relieve the suffering. Your own church has fallen into spiritual declension and the word of God is no longer preached there with power and yet you are still content to stay. The spiritual condition of the world declines all around you and you cannot perceive it. You're willing to cheat on your employer. You find yourself rich in grace and mercy and marvel at your own godlikeness, pride. 25, your tears are dried up and the hard, cold, spiritual facts of your own existence cannot unleash them. That's what it feels like and sounds like to be spiritually drifting.
So the writer of Hebrews here says, for this reason, pay much closer attention to what you've heard. Dangerous D number two, the danger of distrust. The danger of distrust. Hebrews chapter three. Look at verses seven and eight for a moment and then 12 and 13. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. Verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there be not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, the whole context, the greater context begins in verse 7 of chapter 3 and it runs all the way to chapter 4, verse 13. That's the whole passage of the warning, but I'm only reading a couple of excerpts here. The danger of distrust. And he talks about what the Old Testament saints did. He refers to that. Don't do what they did. Instead of entering the rest of the promised land, what did they do? What did they end up doing, Israel? They ended up walking in circles for 40 years in the desert. And an entire generation littered, their graves littered the desert. What's, what's the writer of Hebrews saying here? He's saying you cannot ride the fence. You can't ride the fence. You can't keep your feet in two worlds waiting to decide which way you're going to go. Now, he says, is the time for decision. The longer you put off receiving the gospel, the greater the danger of your soul becoming callous to it and hardened to it. Look at verse 14 here of chapter 3. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of, what's it say? Unbelief. Unbelief. Unbelief is the ultimate reason that people reject Christ. Unbelief. That's the bottom line. That seems pretty simple, doesn't it? The only way to enter the rest that the, that the writer of Hebrews talks about is to believe in Christ. To trust in the salvation that he offers. Remember what he said in Matthew 11, 28 to 30? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'll give you rest. A lot of Christian lives are often comparable to the disparity between front and backyards of many California homes. 
West Coast pilots would understand this analogy completely. I've read that on bright, clear days when a pilot is blessed to be dancing in the clouds, flying his plane, he sees the stark difference between the front and backyards of numerous homes. If you and I were to be a passenger looking out the window over the landscape, we'd see beautiful, lush, green landscape front yards, one after another after another, like an Irish giant's checkerboard quilt. But every third or so backyard, according to the writer, will be Sahara brown, weed-covered, and trash-littered. From an earthly perspective, it might be difficult, near impossible, for us to see a man's backyard. But a pilot has no trouble. Is that right? No trouble. Likewise, he says, the soul and the spirit of a man is as hidden from other men as his backyard is hidden from a passerby. It may be impossible for one man to see the inner reality of another, but from God's perspective, it's no trouble whatsoever. So let me ask you a question. How's your spiritual backyard? How is it? For that matter, how's your front yard? Are you in danger of drifting? Are you falling into distrust? Maybe not. But there's a third big D that you need to check yourself against. The danger of dullness. The danger of dullness. Chapter 5. This is by far, in my opinion, the most widespread in the church today. The danger of dullness. Most people become little by little deaf to the things of God. They come, they sit, they listen, they go. They come, they sit, they listen, go. Come, sit, listen, go. Come, sit, listen, go. Rather than taking what they've heard in order to go, act, learn, and grow. It's kind of like attention deficit disorder in the spiritual realm. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 Concerning him, meaning Melchizedek, which he was talking about in the verse before, we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Listen, dullness hinders our spiritual perception and performance. Plain and simple. The saddest picture in the world is someone who for years and years and years has professed to be a follower of Christ and hasn't done anything with it. That's a sad picture. Are you in danger of that? You know, you ought to be teaching others. If you are a follower of Christ, you should be teaching others about Jesus Christ. I don't care if you've been saved for one day. You have what it takes to lead someone else to the bread of life and the river of living water, don't you? 
Instead, people come, sit, listen, go, and they keep going over and over and over the same spiritual ABCs. And you know what? why that happens? It's because people don't respond to what they've heard. It goes in one ear and out the other. The scary thing is that whole churches can become like that, not just individuals. Whole churches can become like that. Listen, if you're bored with your faith, it's likely because you're not using your faith. Chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works of faith toward God, of instruction without wa about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Friends, we should be allowing God to move us forward. Forward. Press on to maturity. Dullness is hurdled by spiritual progress. For an increasingly large number of people in the church, the things of God have become dull and uninteresting, like a no-salt diet. They're looking for something more exciting to their senses, but they still want something less threatening to their lives. Usually it involves something other than Christianity, if that's the case. Dullness hints at spiritual apostasy. It's hinting at it. You know what apostasy is? It's leaving and turning away from the faith. And many, many people have done it. Are you thinking about going AWOL? Here's a New Testament text message straight from the hands of the Holy Spirit. Verses 4 to 6 of Hebrews 6. Scary, scary verses. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have made partake, been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then, having fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. That's a scary verse. A couple of verses of Scripture, isn't it? The bottom line is that if you have gotten this far, if you've got the knowledge of the truth and have seen the Spirit working in people's lives and then you turn your back on Christ, there is absolutely no place left for you to go for salvation, according to this text. None. If you've professed to be a Christ follower and then you turn your back on him, chances are you were never really his to begin with. In fact, that's what I believe. I don't believe this passage is teaching that you can lose your salvation. It's a warning, just like the other warnings in Hebrews, to people that are in danger of turning away. And what he's saying is if you, if you turn away from Christ, there's nothing left for you. Nothing left for you. And if you do successfully turn from Christ, then you were never really his to begin with. Because Jesus says, I know my sheep, and my sheep know my voice, and no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. 
But look at verses 8 and 9, 7, 8, and 9 here. Get a little bit more positive. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and it ends up being burned. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. I'm convinced of better things concerning the church today. Sometimes I think that most people have simply forgotten whose they are and need to be brought back to the reality of their true identity. That's what I think. I assume most of you have seen the movie Toy Story by now, right? Early in the movie, Woody shouts, you're not a space ranger, you're an action figure, a child's plaything, right? Remember that scene? And only after failing to fly does Buzz Lightyear realize the truth of Woody's statement. So grief-stricken and disillusioned, Buzz hangs his head in resignation, declaring, I'm just a stupid little insignificant toy, right? So Woody comes alongside of him and seeks to comfort his friend by underscoring the love of the boy who owns them both. He says, you must not be thinking clearly. And he says, look over in that house. There's a kid over there who thinks you're the greatest. And it's not because you're a space ranger. It's because you're his. And as Buzz lifts his foot, he sees the label affixed to the bottom of his boot, right? There in black permanent ink is the name of the little boy to whom he belongs. And seeing the mark of his owner, Buzz breaks into a smile and he takes on a whole new determination to be who he's meant to be. Here's the truth about that and why I give that to you. We are not our own. Scripture tells us we're bought with a price. We're bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are His. Our names have been engraved. His name has been engraved on us. Our names are engraved on the palm of His hand. The value of our lives is not determined by our rank, our heroic action, or our accomplishments. Our value is determined solely by the one who has marked us with His own blood as His own. That's who we are. And we all have a choice. We can snap out of our dullness and respond with determination to the love of Christ who bought us, or we can go our own way, and that choice propels us to consider warning number four, the danger of disregard. I don't know if you're seeing the pattern here, but as the dangers go on, they're getting more and more intense. They're getting more and more serious. The danger of disregard, chapter 10, verse 26. The writer says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. 
Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a terrifying thing, people, to fall into the hands of a living God. This is probably the most serious of the five dangerous deeds. Because it smacks here of an attitude and an act of flat-out rejection of Christ. You cannot truly be following Christ and continuing in blatant sin. You cannot truly be following Christ and continuing in blatant sin. You can't do it. And I'm not just saying that. The scripture is very clear about it. 1 John chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. None of those who are children of God continue to sin. For God's very nature is in them. And because God is their father, they cannot continue to sin. This is the clear difference between God's children and the devil's children. All who do not do what is right or do not love others are not God's children. Now, he's not talking about falling into sin. We all sin. What he's talking about is continuing in a life of sin with no regard at all to repentance. Sinning is a matter of habit, as a matter of life. If you're in that place and believe yourself to be a disciple of Christ, here's all this is saying. You better do a spiritual self-check. Examine yourselves, test yourselves to see if you're of the faith. The willful disregard of what we know to be true is serious, serious business, according to these scriptures. Note the condition here in these verses that I just read. There's deliberate apostasy. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, then there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Apostates are generally bred inside the church. They're people who have a clear and full understanding of the truth and who then flatly and outrightly reject it. Their rejection of the one and only way of salvation leaves them only one expectation according to this text. The consequences, definitive judgment. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, the writer says. And there's nothing more heart-wrenching to me than to watch my friends and family willfully choose to reject the way, the truth, and the life. In essence, to choose hell. That hurts. Does it hurt you? There is also nothing more deflating than to watch people yawn and close their eyes in the face of God's open invitation to receive his greatest gift, his son, Jesus Christ. One of the most disturbing acts, some of you know this, I've, I've, 
I've spoken about this before. Some of you don't, so I'm going to say it again. But one of the most disturbing acts that I've ever witnessed happened years ago as my wife and I were driving back to work after lunch. This was, this was long before. I don't even think we were, I wasn't even a, a, a Christian then. And neither was my wife. But we were driving back to work from our lunch break and as we neared the middle of Memorial Bridge in Augusta, a woman right in front of us climbed up on the edge of the railing. This was before they had those safety gates, fences up there. Climbed up on the top of the railing and jumped. Just jumped off the bridge. I couldn't believe my eyes. She plunged to her apparent death 150 feet below, landing in the river at low tide. Okay? It was about waist deep. I immediately drove to the fire station and alerted the rescue workers. Within minutes, they had launched a rescue boat into the water. And amazingly, amazingly enough, the woman was not dead. She was standing up. Knee deep, waist deep in the cold waters of the Kennebec. And as I watched this rescue boat draw close to her, I was literally paralyzed with what she did next. She literally began attempting to run away from the rescue boat, downriver, throwing herself into the water, attempting to drown herself. She was deliberately rejecting her only hope of salvation, a complete disregard for help. It was the saddest thing I think I've ever seen. That's what I picture. Whenever I hear people willfully refuse the offer of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, that's what I picture. And it happens all the time. All the time. When people reject such a costly gift, the Bible says that they literally stomp on the face of Jesus Christ. God says such a total disregard for life deserves death. And every single one of us deserves death. Yet through the fact that God loved us enough to pour out his wrath on Jesus instead of us, we have life. And that more abundantly. Now, if you've heard the truths of Scripture preached week after week and haven't yet made a concrete decision for Jesus Christ, the danger of disregard is a very real finger pointing at your very real future. Don't put off the decision that you need to make today. But there's one more D. The last dangerous D. The danger of disrespect. The danger of disrespect in chapter 12, verse 25. The writer says, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. 
This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. God spoke through Moses in the Old Testament on Mount Sinai saying, this is my law, heed it. But God spoke in the New Testament on the Mount of Transfiguration by saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. Hear him. If the Israelites didn't escape God's judgment when he spoke to them on earth, how can anyone escape his judgment when he warns us from heaven about listening to his son. In the Old Testament, Aaron's sons who were priests had no respect for what God had revealed to them as acceptable offerings. And as a result of offering strange fire, if you remember the situation in the Old Testament, fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. That's Leviticus 10, verses 1 and 2. And that's what the writer's referring to here when he says, for our God is a consuming fire. Listen, don't think that that was just Old Testament stuff. In the New Testament, in the early church, Ananias and Sapphira died after lying to God and showing no respect for him in Acts chapter 5. Now, we haven't seen God do that in a while, but he could. And the question is, how many of us would be alive here this morning if God consumed us every time we showed disrespect for him? Church might be empty probably would be empty. Praise God for his grace and that only through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. January of 2000, leaders in Charlotte, North Carolina invited their favorite speaker, Billy Graham, to a luncheon in his honor. And Billy initially hesitated to accept the invitation because he struggled with Parkinson's disease, still has it, but... The Charlotte leaders said, we don't expect a major ad address. We just want you to come and let us honor you. So he agreed. So after wonderful things were said about him, Dr. Graham stepped up to the pulpit, looked at the crowd, and he said, I'm reminded today of Albert Einstein, the greatest physicist who this month has been honored by Time magazine as the man of the century. Einstein was once traveling from Princeton, he said, on a train when the conductor came down the aisle punching the tickets of each passenger. And when he came to Einstein, Einstein reached into his vest pocket, but he couldn't find his ticket. So he reached in his other pocket, and it wasn't there either. And so he looked in his briefcase, and it wasn't there, and he looked in the seat by him, and he couldn't find it. And the conductor said, Dr. Einstein, I know who you are. We all know who you are. I'm sure you bought a ticket. Don't worry about it. And Einstein nodded appreciatively. The conductor continued down the aisle punching tickets. And as he was ready to move to the next car, he turned around. He saw Einstein back down on his hands and knees looking under his seat for his ticket. The conductor rushed back and said, Dr. Einstein, don't worry about it. I know who you are. It's no problem. You don't need a ticket. I'm sure you bought one. And Einstein looked him square in the eye and he said, young man, I too know who I am. What I don't know is where I'm going. 
So having said that, Billy Graham continued. He said, see this suit that I'm wearing today? It's a brand new suit. He said, my wife, my children, and my grandchildren are telling me I've gotten a little slovenly lately in my old age. So I used to be a little bit more conscious of the way I look. So I went out and I bought this new suit for this luncheon and one other occasion. You know what that occasion is? This is the suit in which I'll be buried, he said. But when you hear I'm dead, I don't want you to immediately remember the suit I'm wearing. I want you to remember this. I not only know who I am, but I also know where I'm going. Now, friends, before you and I can even consider the possibility of going forward with God toward our ultimate destination, all of us need to consider examining ourselves, find the red dot. Are you even on the map? Are you really in the faith or are you just playing religious games? This is no joke this morning. It's not just a sermon. Today is the day to take these warnings seriously. It's quite possible that you've been drifting away from the faith for some time. Maybe you've never really trusted Christ at all. Is the word of God becoming dull to you? Have you completely disregarded his offering of forgiveness? A lack of respect, you know, for God's incredible grace may not call down fire from heaven today, but don't be fooled. It will come someday. So I'm asking you seriously and with all sincerity, with everything that I have in my being, please, please do not leave here this morning without establishing a personal relationship with Jesus Christ by faith. Let me repeat the advice I gave you a couple of weeks ago. Employ this threefold strategy, would you? Number one, evaluate your position. Find the red dot. Number two, employ a drastic change of direction if you find that it's not where it should be. And number three, couple it with a radical change of pace because you and I don't have all the time in the world. If you, that's what God counsels us to do. If you're in danger of heading for shipwreck, you need to drastically change your direction. Turn away from sin and run towards God. Move away from distrust and believe what God says about a relationship with his son, Jesus. And then radically change your pace because we don't have all the time in the world. We don't. God says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, serious weighty message this morning from your word. May we take it to heart. And may we not harden our hearts against it, but to run toward it with open arms embracing it. The gift of your son, Jesus Christ. 
the only name under heaven by which we are saved. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen.